Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Four. 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 Four years. Four years? Four years? Four years? Four. 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 Four? Why all this chatter about the number four? Well, it was four years ago that the huge National March for Women happened in Washington, D.C. Some 470,000 people demonstrated in D.C., and it's estimated that another 3 to 5 million people rallied at other sites around the country. That represents more than 1% of the American population actually took part in the 2017 Women's March. And it was four years ago that then-President Trump declared that the U.S. would pull out of the Paris Agreement on climate change mitigation. We saw the birth of the Me Too movement four years ago, and Colin Kaepernick first started taking the knee during football games that year, 2017. And believe it or not, it was four years ago that we got to witness a spectacular solar eclipse here in Kentucky. Other big things happened four years ago, too. Donald Trump started off his presidency with a travel ban on people coming from seven predominantly Muslim countries. He declared major news outlets as fake media and enemy of the people. It was four years ago that neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us. And it was in 2017 that there were mass shootings in Las Vegas, killing 58 people, and another one in a church in Texas claiming the lives of 26. In the midst of this whirlwind of events, and perhaps even as a result of them, another important event happened right here in Louisville four years ago. This radio station, WFMP Forward Radio, first began broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville. It was exactly four years ago this month that 106.5 FM hit the airwaves. So we are celebrating! Forward Radio is a grassroots, community-based FM radio station that's dedicated to serving the community of Louisville and southern Indiana by providing a megaphone for community partners in the struggle for peace, the environment, and social and economic justice. Our radio transmitter is in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, and even though we're a low-power station, we have the potential of reaching 300,000 people directly through the airwaves. And in addition, our radio station is live-streamed from our website, forwardradio.org, Plus, many of our shows are provided as podcasts on SoundCloud, which means that people from all around the world can and do listen in. 
unlike other nonprofit radio stations, and I won't say who, we don't accept corporate sponsorship. We are totally dependent on volunteers and the kindness of generous donors like you. We have a fundraising campaign going on this week because we need to raise $5,000 to stay on the air for another year. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but if everyone pitched in just a little, we could meet that goal. People know, after all, that there's no place else to hear from Amy Goodman, Tom Hartman, Ralph Nader, Laura Flanders, Richard Wolfe, Arnie Arneson, Paul Fisher, Sonali, Margaret Flowers, or Harry Shearer. And those are our national shows. We've also got a myriad of excellent local broadcasters, too. They're providing an alternative outlet for local thinkers, activists, and agitators to get the word out to this community. So start scrounging up your spare change now. That way you can join the rest of the progressive, socially aware folks in Louisville and beyond who are committed to building a media that truly matters. To donate to WFMP, just go to forwardradio.org and find the link on our Indiegogo page. And we've got lots of gifts for your donations. Face masks, buttons, books, t-shirts, hand-knitted items, ceramics, tote bags, pillows, art, etc. And there's an alternate or additional way that you can support Forward Radio this week. We're having an online talent contest this Saturday, April 10th. Each performer will have four minutes to entertain or inspire you, and then the audience will vote anonymously for their favorite performer. And the most popular talent will win $100. Now, it costs $10 to log into the talent contest, but it's going to be fun. And it should be tax-deductible and goes to a good cause, Forward Radio. So go to forwardradio.org to order your tickets to this online talent contest and tune in on Saturday, April 10th at 7 p.m. So yeah, we've been at it for four years now and we're getting better and better every year. So please visit our website at forwardradio.org and donate to WFMP. Help us stay on the air for another year so we can keep up the good fight. In the meantime, we do have a great show for you today. We've got stories about astronomy, cancer, climate change, and the science of pets. Right now, we've got Scott Miller on what's to be seen in the night sky this month. April invokes spots of warmer weather. Warmer weather does tempt one to linger outside in the evening as the stars begin to shine. But starting out happens a bit later in the evening, thanks to daylight savings time. It is nearly 9 in the evening before I can head out myself and take a look around. Getting out in early evening twilight, the sole planet to be found in the western sky remains to be Mars. Mars can still be picked up high in the western sky in twilight skies, perhaps a little closer to the western horizon, but not noticeably different compared to last month. The moon will make its appearance in the western sky around the 13th and march toward Mars with each successive evening, passing it between the evenings of the 16th and 17th. Since I'm looking westward to hunt for planets, I might as well continue looking that way as stars begin appearing. Before too long, some recognizable patterns begin to emerge. 
with the coming of darkness, Orion is still easy to spot. Dominating the southwestern sky as darkness falls, alignments of stars making it up can help us find stars in other constellations. The three belt stars send the eyes westward toward the bright star Aldebaran. Aldebaran marks the fiery eye of Taurus the bull. The tight, V-shaped group of stars that include Aldebaran is called the Hyades. They mark the face of the bull, with extensions of the arms of the V leading to two stars marking the horn tips. Mars is seen within those horns. West of the Hyades, a cluster of stars known as the Pleiades mark the shoulder of the bull. Returning to Orion and his well-known belt of stars, a line going in the opposite direction as before leads us to Sirius, the brightest star in our night skies. It is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog. The rest of the dog is an approximate rectangle of stars south of Sirius, bright enough to catch one's eyes in dark skies. Sirius is one of the corners. The shoulder stars of Orion can lead us to a bright star, a line from the dimmer Bellatrex of the brighter Betelgeuse heading eastward leads to Procyon, the brightest star in Canis Minor, the small dog. Small indeed, because Procyon and one other star just to its right are almost the entire constellation. Great imaginations our ancestors had. Back to Orion again for one more line drawing, this time going from Rigel, the rightmost and brighter Nice star of Orion, diagonally through Orion to Betelgeuse and beyond. That line passes nearly through a pair of stars of about the same brightness, the twin stars, Castor and Pollux. These mark the heads of Gemini, the twins. The bodies of these two extend along a pair of line of stars directed back toward Orion. Gemini is nearly overhead as darkness comes. Turning my back on Mars, I am now facing east, and Leo the Lion presents itself well above the eastern horizon. Its brightest star, Regulus, catches one eye as one of the brightest stars in that direction. Above and to the left of Regulus is a sickle-shaped group of stars marking the head of Leo, while more to the east of it is a right triangle of stars marking the lion's hind quarters. A bit closer to the eastern horizon by nine in the evening is Arcturus. Arcturus is brighter than Regulus, but may be obscured by trees or houses early in the evening that may be close to one's observing site. Later in the evening, it will call more attention to itself. And I know that I'm looking at Arcturus because the Big Dipper can lead me there. Catching my eye more over to the northeast is the pattern of the Big Dipper. From now until autumn, it should be easy to spot at some point along the arc of its path in the northern sky. The handle of the Big Dipper is notably curved. If one follows that curve of stars onward, one is led to Arcturus. Arcturus is the brightest star in the constellation Bootes, sort of a kite-shaped pattern of stars lying parallel to the horizon in the early evening skies of April. The two stars marking the front of the bowl of the Big Dipper, the pointer stars, provide a line northward to the north star Polaris. I note that, as usual, Polaris is the same height above the horizon and in the north, making it an ideal marker from which I can find my directions in the night sky. Polaris is at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper, a real test of how dark or how light polluted the skies are. Out away from city lights, the curve of the Little Dipper's handle extending away from Polaris is pretty easy to spot, as are the four stars that make up its bowl. But at times when I've observed in Louisville, 
I was lucky to pick out the two stars that marked the front of the bowl. At this time of year, it would seem that Big Dipper is positioned to pour its contents into the bowl of the Little Dipper in the early evening skies. Later this month, and hopefully as temperatures become that much more favorable, a meteor shower should be visible, if getting up early is not a hindrance. Overnight, April 21st and 22nd, but more pronounced an hour or so before dawn on the 22nd, that is, while the skies are still dark, the lyrid meteor shower may make its appearance. This shower may produce around a dozen meteors per hour near its peak, an hour or so before dawn, while skies are still dark. But meteor showers are much like the dimmer stars that make up most of the constellations, a good test of one's light-polluted skies. So April skies have some easy things to spot. Constellations up at this time of the year have bright stars within them to aid in the hunt. Mars still lingers in the western sky. And toward the end of the month, a chance to catch a bit of space debris. All one needs to do is to get up and out under the stars. That was Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Now let's hear from Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Hello, this is Amanda Fuller with the Kentucky Academy of Science. I am interviewing students who were winners at our Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting in November 2020. And today I have in the studio with me, Andrew Elliott from EKU. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Bench Talk. I would love for you to tell us about your research. You presented in the organic and inorganic chemistry section. Your research is about technetium radio imaging techniques. That's correct. Uh, so I work with a wonderful lady named Dr. Dingiri at EKU, and uh, her lab does a lot of things. So we picked out a, kind of a small portion of her research for this project. Generally speaking, we're focused on cancer therapies, either imaging or killing cancer cells. This project specifically was focused upon the imaging end of our work. And we're working with a, a metal called technetium. It's, a, it's nuclide, it's a 99M for metastable. It's a nuclide that emits a really ideal wavelength of uh, gamma radiation that's easily detectable outside of the body and it has a very short half-life. So it's not inside someone's body a real long time once it gets in there. And the chemistry behind it's a little complicated. It's the, the lightest, fully synthetic element. It doesn't have any stable nuclides, so all of them are radioactive. It's a row-7 transition element with all the associated chemistry. So it's pretty tricky to work with, and for that reason, our lab actually uses rhenium as a stand-in. And then uh, the, the other main focus uh, that, that sets our research apart is that we have found a really nice modular chelation molecule that allows us to very stably chelate to the specific type of technetium core called a tricarbonyl core. And it has this nitrogen in the center of the symmetrical molecule that chelates to it. It's very easy to functionalize and add any number of, of other groups to, whether they're fluorophore agents or uh, bridges to put peptides onto or other targeting molecules. There's just a lot of ways that we could take this. And it's really easy to make them and high yields. So it, it makes it very uh, approachable for hospital labs to take and use efficiently. No, that's <laughs> terrific. I think because there is such a cancer problem in Kentucky, the point that you've made about um, the importance of imaging is really an important one. 
And I want you to just tell us a little bit more about how does tumor imaging work? What are the really important considerations when you're trying to improve those technologies for detecting cancer? Sure. Like you said, Kentucky is the worst state for cancer for both diagnosis and death, unfortunately. And it's been like that for several years running now. In my recording, I said that there's two main fronts for for cancer therapy. There's killing cells quicker and finding them sooner so that they haven't spread to other organs or, or gotten to a point where they're challenging to kill. So if you can do that, if you can image tumors earlier, then it makes it way, way more treatable, patient outcomes are better, there's less morbidity, and, and less of a likelihood of recurrence as well. So finding those, those tumors early is very important. And the challenge is that current technology, uh, while it's come a long ways, it still really struggles to identify tumor clusters in dense fibrous tissues, like breast tissues for women that have larger breasts, deep tumors well within uh, you know, the smaller large intestines, stuff like that. It can be kind of a challenge to image. And one of the techniques that has evolved to, to accommodate this is the use of radioactive imaging agents, the most popular of which is something called FDR. It uses radioactive fluorine and some modified sugar. And it's a really great idea. It takes a, advantage of a, a something called the Warburg effect, where cancer cells, they don't typically have functional mitochondria. They generate all their energy just through glycolysis. So they, they're very sugar heavy. They're very sugar hungry. <laughs> so if you put a bunch of radioactive sugar in someone's body, it's going to absorb that. And then you can detect the radiation using detectors. Our system that we're developing is kind of, uh, kind of like the next generation of radioactive imaging agents because we're, we're trying to use agents that are more targeted so that you can identify smaller clusters of cells also using agents that aren't also absorbed by other cells. You know, sugar obviously feeds a lot of physiological processes. So if you can find something that is more likely to have some fidelity to one type of cancer, you can really hone in on it much more efficiently. So with that in mind, specifically our lab is looking at targeting some reproductive cancers using a peptide called LHRH, which is short for luteinizing hormone release hormone goes by a few other names as well. But the receptor for this hormone is overexpressed by a lot of reproductive cancers, especially breast cancer. And there's a number of other ones as well, not just reproductive cancers. But being that it's so hard to image breast cancer and it's such a prevalent tumor type, you know, if we can figure out how to do that while using that receptor, then we can use it for other types of cancer while also making a really big dent in one of the primary causes of you know, cancer death in America. So uh, there's a lot of chemistry behind it. It gets kind of complicated and it's a work in progress. You know, it's not something that we finish by any means, but we're, we're pretty hopeful because other work that we've done in our lab working on cytotoxic agents that use the same peptide really show high target fidelity. And the, uh, the woman that's in charge of this, Dr. Nikiri, my mentor, has already got a few patents with her colleague, uh, Dr. Calderon on the cytotoxic end. So they're kind of trying to evolve that into the imaging and, and kind of try to improve both of those fronts of cancer therapy that I was discussing. Well, great. Well, good luck to you. It sounds like you have a great future in front of you and thank you for all your great work on this. It's a really important and useful research. So thanks for doing it and thanks for joining us on Bench Talk. Well, I appreciate you having me. That was Amanda Fuller of Kentucky Academy of Science interviewing Andrew Elliott an undergraduate researcher at Eastern Kentucky University. Now let's hear from Professor Scott Miller again. This time it's commentary about global climate change. In the early 1900s, John Haldane recommended using canaries in coal mines 
as a guard of humans against gases like carbon monoxide. The anatomy of canaries, birds in general, makes them more vulnerable to the gases because they are continuously inhaling. They inhale oxygen initially, but it gets stored in sacs, allowing it to be released for use when they exhale. This is helpful to birds when they are flying, especially to heights where humans can experience altitude sickness from the lack of available oxygen to breathe. But the drawback in the use of mines is that the canary would also get a double dose of any poisonous air it breathed in the mine, becoming sick or even dying before humans would suffer the same fate. Today, mechanical detectors have replaced this inhumane treatment of canaries, a job loss I am sure canaries don't miss. In mid-January, NASA and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which focuses on conditions of oceans, major waterways, and atmosphere, announced that 2020 had effectively tied the record for warmest year on record, initially held by 2016. The average global temperature of the atmosphere is about 2 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the baseline that is used, the 1800s. And the culprit continues to be the rise in the level of carbon dioxide and methane, as well as other greenhouse gases. This continued rise in temperature with greenhouse gases is effectively our canary in the coal mine. Rising temperatures may differ from point to point on Earth, which is more of a localized or weather-related phenomenon. And this may be why people tend to ignore the global rise numbers. Thinking globally or long-term is not a strength of some people. They look around themselves and see day-to-day -day temperatures similar to what they experienced last year or the year before that and claim that there is no temperature rise. They are the miners that choose to ignore the circumstances of the dying canary. But the consequences are real, as revealed in a study released in Science Magazine back in December of 2020 and reported in both Physics Today in their December issue and NASA's Global Climate Change News in their January 2021 issue. Both of these articles report on the conclusion of the Science Magazine article that scientists identified an unsettling trend. 86% of land ecosystems globally are becoming progressively less efficient at absorbing the increasing levels of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Under normal conditions, plants take in carbon dioxide, nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and water, using these so that the plant can build itself up. In the process, oxygen is released into the atmosphere. This release of oxygen into the atmosphere built up oxygen in what was thought to have been a nitrogen-rich atmosphere possessed by the Earth, paving the way for animals, oxygen breathers, to evolve on the surface of the Earth. Now the plants help maintain that oxygen. The new study, published in the December 10th issue of Science, finds that this process, known as the Carbon Dioxide Fertilization Effect, SFE for short, finds that since 1982, the global average SFE has decreased steadily from 21% to 12% per parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, according to one of the study's co-authors and a scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, Ben Poulter. In his words, the terrestrial ecosystems are becoming less reliable as a temporary climate change mitigator. He goes on to say, According to our data, what appears to be happening is that there is both a moisture limitation as well as a nutrient limitation coming into play. In the tropics, there is often just not enough nitrogen or phosphorus to sustain photosynthesis, 
and in the high-latitude temperate and boreal regions, soil moisture is now more limiting than air temperature because of recent warming. In short, what the canary in the coal mine, global average temperature rise linked to human-produced greenhouse gases, is indicating is that the temperature continues to rise, soil is not able to retain moisture. And with no moisture to feed upon, plants cannot build themselves and become limited in the amount of carbon dioxide they can take in. And in soils that are being depleted of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, primarily due to deforestation in those regions, plants are also being limited in their ability to grow in the presence of increased carbon dioxide, keeping plants from helping the mitigation of its continued increase. So one might ask if this can be turned around. Can the canary in the coal mine alert us in time to do what needs to be done to turn this process around? The first thing that can be done is to make sure our elected officials, from the local level to the national level, are also listening to the canary. Unfortunately, there are many of one particular political party that are deaf to such warnings. They think short-term and not long-term, endangering all of us in the process. As long as the voters keep them in office, they become enablers that are endangering all of us too. Facts do matter. Science does matter. And it is important that the rest of us hammer this point home to those who are not heeding the lack of a song from the canary. One can only hope that those of us supporting science are not ignored to the point where turning this global problem around is no longer possible. Thanks for that, Scott. Now, Leslie Moise, local author and poet. The Science of Pets and Health, part of the Science in Everyday Life series. News in Health is funding a series of studies about the connection between health and pet ownership, a fairly new area of scientific study. Pets have the potential to help children with ADHD and other issues. Pets may also lower cortisol, a stress hormone, blood pressure, and lessen loneliness. Even watching fish in a tank can lower stress. Therapy dogs brought to hospitals and nursing homes offer comfort to lonely people. There's even a therapy horse named Pero, a 14-year-old stallion who visits hospitals two times a month. He's fiery in the field but very calm in the hospital. He even chooses the patients himself. They just lead him down the hall, and he decides which room to enter. He's made terminal patients more communicative with medical staff. June McNichols, formerly of the University of Warwick, wrote an article with Andrew Colby, also of the University of Warwick, and a veterinary surgeon, and they found that pets offer similar emotional support and companionship to human relationships, though pets can't replace human relationships. People are less likely to grow burned out with animal relationships than they are with people. Relationships with pets offer more stability and less frustration than human relationships. Pets are also helpful after the death of a loved one. And now I have a poem. Gizmo. My 20-year-old whippet rescue, his once-brown eyes clouded blue with cataracts. 
When sharp ears don't hear me call, hear me whistle. He only responds to claps. His earlier obedience to sit, stay, heel transitioned through gestures and then into the claps. His kink tail wags when he hears the sound. But he knows what I mean in the moment. He sits, he stays, he heals. He obeys my meaning. His mouth wide in a doggy grin. Thanks to Dr. Leslie Moise, local writer and teacher for that poem. And thanks to all the contributors to this week's show. And thanks to you for providing your moral and financial support of this show. And all the shows on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.